Welcome, everyone, to the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. I am your co-host, Eric Lindblade, and as always, I am joined by my co-host, Jim Hessler. Jim, what's our episode tonight? Hey, Eric. Welcome back. Welcome back, everybody. We are going to begin tonight with a two-parter from esteemed historian Carol Reardon, covering, of all things, John Sedgwick in the Sixth Corps. Now, you know, when you come to Gettysburg... You do your deep dive, you take a tour, you don't hear a lot about the 6th Corps, so people might be surprised to find out that there's going to be a lot to unpack tonight. So with that, coming to you from the content capital of the free world in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, we are also joined by Superfan Jody. How you doing, Jody? I'm doing great. It's been a busy uh, time around here in Gettysburg. It has. We've been doing a lot of stuff, huh? Every month we've pretty much had things going on. We had, well, actually in February, at, over with you at you the did. World War II Experience, a great event there with a number of, of our friends and, and colleagues there, a good time. Wasn't that cool to do some World War II stuff? It was. Who would have thought a Civil War podcast <laughs> ends up talking about World War II at Gettysburg? Well, I mean, you are historians. We are. That do, that needs to be reminded mm-hmm. to folks a little bit more that we are actually historians, just putting that out there. But speaking of historians and a great site as well, in March, we were mm-hmm. over at our friends at the Seminary Ridge yeah. Museum for the symposium again. And Jim, I do believe their most successful symposium yet. Yeah, our good friend Pete Meal has pretty much said that that was the uh, the best attended, I believe the best attended event of any kind they've ever had. Really? Uh, yeah, between live and remote. I think Pete has said, you know, this was the best event ever in the history of the Seminary Ridge Museum. And, you know, we should mention Stu MC was there too. But Jim, Eric, Stu, Pete and Cody from the uh, museum, you know, this was the second year in a row. That's that, an amazing lineup. Yeah, it, well, we thought so. Maybe not everyone thought so. But, not everybody thought yeah, so, but yeah. that's all right. That's okay. The numbers bear it out. The, exactly. The numbers tell the story. And, uh, yeah, a real successful event. Second year we've done it. We're already talking about next year. So big shout out to Stu. Stu Dempsey, and to our friends at the Seminary Ridge Museum. In fact, Stu, he made an appearance at the World War II Museum the month before. He did. He also is very well-rounded. Like us, he's everywhere. How about the Leadership Experience Program that we did in March? Wasn't that a lot of fun? That was a great experience. We had a really great group of, what was the final count? 32 folks from Western Governors University here for for our leadership experience, which was great. We had a wonderful time with them Mm -hmm. using the battle to teach examples of leadership and how to improve what they do on a day-to-day basis. It was really a great event. And if you are interested in your organization or group coming here to do a leadership experience, please contact the show. We can put you in touch with Jody and we can get all that worked out and hopefully get you here and be a part of that leadership experience that we provide through the show. Yeah. And if we didn't mention it, big shout out, big thanks to super fan Gordon Laws. Jen and the whole team from Western Governors University. Seems like they had a great time. Feedback was great. Again, that's superfan Gordon Laws, not to be confused with Evander Law from the Battle of Gettysburg. Just thought I'd call that out. But I'm sure Evander Law, if he could have been, would have been a super fan. Exactly. And I think he would have been as fine of an educator and administrator as Gordon is. So, Gordon, if you're listening, thanks again and look forward to seeing you soon. 
So I think you know what it says. We have a lot going on right now between not only the show, our live events, but also our YouTube page, yeah. which you, Jim, have been doing a lot of effort on. So do you want to talk about that really quick before we get into the episode? Yeah, you know we we have established the Battle of Gettysburg podcast on YouTube. Uh, like all the content we do, it's free, folks. If you can go over. YouTube, the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. Like, how could you forget that name? It's the same name, but go subscribe. And what we've been doing is we've been converting podcast episodes to video. So we've been adding maps and things like that. Maps? Yeah, like maps and images <laughs> and photos. I know and nobody ever asks for maps. I know. You know? Jo- <laughs> making out listeners, Jody got very excited by yes. the maps, right? Yeah, well, like maps, maps are very exciting. Yes. They are exciting. So I think Jody's going to want to check out the new youtube channel i mean i checked it out a little bit but have you subscribed <laughs> yes i did i did okay good i knew i'd get in trouble if i didn't so I did. but not only that <laughs> can i use the word content exclusive content only on the youtube i see eric's making a face <laughs> only on the youtube channel exclusive interviews some on the field stuff come on folks help us grow the youtube channel battle of gettysburg podcast on YouTube. And, and I think what it shows is that we have a lot going on in a number of different areas that I think is providing some of the best Gettysburg programming anywhere out there. And, and I think this episode we're doing, one of the things I've been really the most proud of, I think, with the show, is how we've really driven the way people view this battle. I think we actually have a major influence on the way this battle is being interpreted. I mean, things we say, you will see showing up people quoting us online uh you'll see them using it out on the field at times which i i am happy to see that and i think this episode will be another one of those that i think within probably a couple weeks after the release of this everybody's going to be talking the sixth core at gettysburg everyone's going to be doing the john sedgwick tours is that what we're thinking i think so oh yeah all those phone calls to the guide office hey can somebody do a sedgwick tour i'm thinking all right so I think with that, let's move on into part one of the Sixth Corps with Dr. Carol Reardon. I think this is going to be an episode that a lot of fans are going to enjoy. A topic that's not really talked about very much, but I think we've got a lot to unpack. And as we do, a, certainly a great deep dive on really an uncovered topic as it relates to the battle. And with not only one of Gettysburg, but really one of the Civil War's premier historians. So uh, enjoy, folks, and we'll see you on the backside. Dr. Carol Reardon is the George Winfrey Professor Emerita of American History in the College of Liberal Arts at Penn State University, specializing in military history. In addition to her tenure at Penn State, Dr. Reardon served as visiting professor of history at the United States Military Academy at West Point from 1999 to 2000, and twice held the Harold K. Johnson professorship at the United States Army War College in 1993 to 94, and again in 2011 to 2012. She currently serves as adjunct professor of history at Gettysburg College. Now, most of our listeners probably know Carol is a military historian. She specializes in the study of the American Civil War and the Vietnam conflict. Her notable Civil War publications include one of my favorites, the prize-winning classic Pickett's Charge in History and Memory, uh, as well as With a Sword in One Hand and Jomini in the Other, The Problem of Military Thought in the Civil War North. 
Also inspired by her long experience with staff rides, she co-authored with Tom Vossler a field guide to Gettysburg, experiencing the battlefield through history, places, and people, as well as a field guide to Antietam. Folks, if you don't have all four of those books on your shelf, you are not a true super fan, so you need to go out and acquire those. But Dr. Reardon has received many awards and accolades for her academic work in public service. She also has significant leadership experience. As the time of the recording, she currently serves on the board of directors of the Gettysburg Foundation and chairs its education committee. So with all of that, the Battle of Gettysburg podcast proudly welcomes Dr. Carol Reardon to the show. We forgot one thing. What? With all that, we forgot something? She's an honorary colleague of ours. She is an honorary licensed battlefield guide on top of all of that. And we want to add, too, that once again, we're joined in the studio by contributing reporter, superfan Jody from Savage. Hi, Jim. Thanks for having me back. All right. Should we get into the Sixth Corps at Gettysburg with Carol Reardon? Oh, definitely. Let's get into the Sixth Corps at Gettysburg. All right. Where should we start? Well, we should start by simply explaining how little the Sixth Corps is part of the story. One of the toughest things to do when uh, Tom and I were writing the field guide to Gettysburg was trying to make sure that everybody got a chance to have their moment in the sun. And then there was the poor Sixth Corps, and there wasn't a whole lot we could do with them. And so that naturally was one of the reasons why I got a little bit more interested in them. Another reason was simply, like so many of you folks out there, you love to come here and do field programs, and we asked a Friends of Gettysburg group at, at some point, what kind of a program would you like to see? And somebody said, what about the Sixth Corps? And all of us who were leading tours looked at each other like, I don't know anything about it. What do you know about it? And it, it, just a lot of, uh, you do it. No, you do it. Yeah. Well, I did it. And based on that, and the fact that I do have an interest in battles other than Gettysburg, I decided it was time to do a little bit more exploring into the Sixth Corps. And if you begin with the top guy, Sedgwick himself, I mean, he's the subject of exactly one biography, mm -hmm. Richard Winslow's biography, which you know came within our lifetimes. There's a collection of his published letters that's been republished uh, in the late 1990s. But other than that, primary material on John Sedgwick is really hard to find. You know, if you go beyond, and I'm making air quotes here for the <laughs> listeners, limited experience yeah. at Gettysburg, and we're going to talk about that. Sedgwick is a noteworthy figure in the American Civil War. Thinking of his role in the Civil War, why do you think more people haven't written about him or studied him? I think partly he has... He did not have a good PR man working for him, for starters. Uh, he was not a self-promoter himself. Uh, he, he dies before he can write memoirs or anything like that. His official family didn't help him in that regard. Yeah. Uh, the people who would have stood up for him weren't around to do that or chose not to do that. Plus, the fact, he was a fairly modest individual. Uh, I, I think he would have been uncomfortable with too much attention. We know plenty of generals who would have welcomed it. Yeah. I don't think Sedgwick is the type. I think Sedgwick, well, I was, I was checking today because I was curious. Sedgwick is is older than most of his peers. And I'm not sure if, it, I mean, it's certainly not a generational difference, but when he's the 50-year-old in the room with a mid, bunch of mid-30s guys, that's a, a different kind of a dynamic. And uh, so I think that could have contributed to it. He, he's If you take a look at the senior commanders at Gettysburg, Lee's the oldest, and then it's Sedgwick, mm -hmm. and, and then it's Meade. 
And so he, he's a, a little bit older. Uh, I'm not counting people like Pendleton, because why should we? Um, <laughs> yeah, does, does yeah, he really, really rang? Yeah. Does he rang? Um, he's here, but does yeah, he yeah, yeah, yeah. Pendleton Potted Plant. You know, they're about the same. So, um, but as far as somebody who's in a position to affect what goes on, I mean, it, that that's that's his style. I think when he got attention, he enjoyed it. When he when he got a presentation sword, mm-hmm. he, a, a lot of what we know about him as a human being is really contained in his letters that he wrote to his sister back right. in Connecticut. And he was just tickled to death in the spring of 1863 when he heard that his former uh, colleagues in the Second Corps, remember he was a division commander in the Second Corps in a lot of 1862, that's who he was with when he was wounded at Antietam, they wanted to honor him with a presentation sword, a fancy horse, and all the horse furniture that went with it. And he was really excited about that. And it was supposed to happen in the middle of June, as it happened. It didn't happen until after Gettysburg. But he was really excited about it. And he he wrote a letter to his sister explaining how great the presentation was and there's a long roster of Second Corps individuals, most of whose names every one of us would recognize. But since it was after Gettysburg, there was a notation after a number of them, fell in battle, fell in battle. About the same time, apparently, somebody had given General Meade a presentation sword. Now, I don't see Sedgwick ever getting up and saying this in public, but in that letter home to uh, his sister, he said, mine was better. Ah. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> He he won't seek the attention, but if it's there, he doesn't mind reveling in it a bit, but only within the confines of close friends. That's just his style. People like that are hard to write biographies about. Yeah, they don't leave a lot <laughs> they, behind. They don't leave a lot behind, and even if it had a chance to put a microphone under their uh, up to their mouths and say, tell, tell us all about yourself, it probably would have been short and to the point. When he was asked to provide a military biography of himself, it filled about one sheet of paper, and that was it. <laughs> You're not going to be able to do a whole lot with with that kind of thing. So I think he, he contributes to it. And personally, I, I sort of have the hunch if, if he were here, he would have said, I'm fine with it. I'm cool with it. <laughs> Leave it alone. And uh, he, he just wanted to be a soldier. We often speculate which of the historical figures we talk about would be podcasting if they were alive today. And I'm, th- I'm not seeing Sedgwick no. as a podcaster. No, I mean, the, the even, even, when, even when the war was just about to begin, he, he was contemplating what his future role might be in it. And one of the options that was on the table was not participating. I yeah. mean, it might be time to resign and go home and, and just stay out of it. So, no, I don't, I don't think he sought the limelight. But he was very much committed to duty as he saw it. And when he was entrusted with commands that he thought were far beyond his capabilities, he accepted them gratefully and did as best as he could with it. But he didn't he didn't want all the attention that went with it. And in fact, he was rather harsh on a number of occasions in his letters to his uh, sister about those of his peers who wore shoulder straps with stars on them, who seemed to cater to the uh, media of the time or wanted to, who sought attention in that regard. He, he, I think he really had problems with McClellan on one hand. He kind of likes, likes him as a, an individual and certainly thanks him for all the trust that McClellan reposes in him. On the other hand, I think he's a little put out by how much everything seemed to be about McClellan. <laughs> so, but you, you can tell that he had a style all his own. 
Yeah. So. I think, too, with Sedgwick, he's one of those individuals, you know his name, mm-hmm. but because the, so much of Gettysburg, if you don't do anything here, or at least yeah. appear that way, yeah. and we see that with other figures we've yeah. covered, Howard, Barlow, the others, if you're known for Gettysburg, that's what's going to define mm-hmm. you, and they're involved in the campaign, just not so much in the battle per se, right. like the Second Corps or other units, and I think also he's known more for his death. Yeah, you know, as in life. Yeah, Every, I know. I don't know how many times we go down Cedric Avenue. And yeah. go, who's the guy on the horse? Yeah, that's John Cedric. Oh, he's the guy that got killed. Thing about the well, elephant. yeah, or you know, couldn't, and we'll couldn't come, hit an elephant at that dis. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, not to get too far ahead of ourselves on that, but I did want to talk about you know how really unfortunately his death has kind of become a punchline mm-hmm. you know which is which is i think really unfortunate because this is this is a brave committed guy who mm-hmm. when you look at his record literally devoted his entire life to the to the united states army and i think we see also with his death how it impacted the army of the potomac mm-hmm. i mean it was i think you have a lot of officers that lose their lives in the army of the potomac but his death seemed to hit pretty hard he seemed yeah. to be a very well liked individual among his peers well we'll come to that i mean maybe put a little but, uh, let's your, your point's right jim let's sort of begin at the beginning with yeah, okay. him just to see what happens i mean when he when the war breaks out i mean he's already had an interesting career he graduates from west point back in 1837 he's in about the middle of his class 24 or 50 24 yeah. out of 50. um commissioned into the artillery he's a field artilleryman serves in mexico stays in the field artillery up till the middle 50s, and then he gets a branch transfer to the cavalry. Now, for somebody who sort of has an image of being slow and conservative in the way he does things and very deliberate in his actions, that's a really interesting change of uh, of branch, to go from artillery where everything has to be precise and 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 all that and and branch transfer over to cavalry. Yeah, you get a promotion, but cavalry ops is very different from artillery ops. And okay, what does he do with it? And if you read his letters, he's explaining that he's not sitting in a headquarters at Fort Fill in the blank somewhere. He's actually going out with his troops. He's active. Uh, he's talking about interactions with uh, various tribes, both in combat and in negotiations. He's talking. He's very much involved in what's going on here. Um, he wants to do things by the book, but as a cavalryman, sometimes he's confronted with unexpected situations, and he figures out how to deal with them. He's always complaining about how slow communication is between him out in, say, Colorado and the National Military Establishment back in Washington. He doesn't get as much guidance as he wishes he would. That's his conservatism coming out, but he takes care of it all. And uh, he's he's really interesting to follow in that way. When the war breaks out, he's um, still considered cavalry, but he's going to get a brigadier general in the brigadier general's commission in the volunteers, and he'll end up, of course, with infantry. So he's been artillery, cavalry, and infantry. How many officers have that much experience no. going into the Civil War? That makes him a little bit different, right there. Mm-hmm. Um, he's going to lead a brigade. He's going to get wounded in battle at Glendale during the Seven Days campaigns. It's not he gets dinged with two bullets. It's not too bad. But we, uh, I'm sure, a lot of us have gone to the West Woods at, at, at Antietam, and we know what happened to him there. He gets hit with three bullets, and his division gets wrecked. Uh, and General Sumner is not helping in this case. 
But Sedgwick there is supposed to have made the comment that if they hit me again, I hope they kill me. Note to listeners, don't ever make comments like that, especially if somebody's there to quote you later. So um, there's no question about his personal bravery. Whenever we take a look and see what that generation expected out of generals, one of the first things that's up there is uh, courage, and they mean physical courage. Will he uh, risk his life with his men and with Sedgwick? Yeah. There's also an element of moral courage. Will he send his... Can he make the hard decisions that sends his troops into uh, a, a hard situation, or will he not do it if he thinks it's a really bad choice? Uh, he, he's confronted with one of those situations at Fredericksburg, Second Fredericksburg, mm-hmm. when he has to figure out, okay, should I go and try and charge up Maurice Heights when we know back in December this doesn't work? And, of course, Joe Hooker is going to say his slowness contributed to everything else that happens at at Chancellorsville. On the other hand, Hooker is a Chancellorsville, and he's not the guy on the scene looking at the situation. And it's awfully hard to get good intel and, and, and do a reasonably good reconnaissance in the area. There's a reason to be cautious in that in that case, maybe overly cautious, in, as it turned out. But what we have is a man here who is not going to pull the trigger and order a headlong charge in a circumstance that on the surface does not appear to have changed dramatically from a few months earlier when it was a slaughter. When it comes to the courage that Jomini and almost all the other military theorists of the era would have expected out of leadership, Sedgwick checks the block. The other things that the military theorists would have talked about are pretty much the same things that we talk about today. Um, well, first one is always try to carry out the mission. He's Sedgwick is never in command of any, that, anything larger than a corps. So he's not the one who gets to make the plan or set the army on a certain course. He has to just carry out his piece of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. Um by and large, you don't hear a whole lot of complaints about him unless somebody's looking for a scapegoat. Joe Hooker's ghost, are you listening? Um, that's <laughs> he, Joe Hooker is a listener to the yeah. show, by the way. Okay. Yeah. Well, the other part that's kind of interesting to me, though, is back during the Civil War, if you took a look at Jomini and those folks, today, if you ask a commander, what, what are your two main missions, two main responsibilities? They'd say, carry out your mission and take care of your people. It used to be men, but now it's people. Take care of your soldiers. Back, if you read Jomini and all that, they'd say carry out the mission. And they wouldn't say so much about taking care of your people. Um, there's, It's the inheritance from the old Napole- Napoleonic age where uh, units are blocks on a flat map and you move blocks around. You don't move people around. In this way, Sedgwick is maybe a little head- ahead of the game because he's very much interested in... Um, taking care of his people, and not just in a, you know, save their lives kind of way. He's very much interested in supply matters. He's interested in making sure that they're fed, getting the mail through. I mean, they don't call him Uncle John for nothing. Uh, He earns this, and it's not just because he's older. It's because he's really taking care of them. Mm -hmm. He does, his headquarters has a family aspect to it. Um, There's another Sedgwick who is a relative on his staff. There, there's those kinds of elements to the way Sedgwick works. So there's some very quaint, old-fashioned elements to his leadership, but there are some that are sort of on the cutting edge, of the, the new style of leadership that focuses on the individual. So in, in many ways, there's lots of things about Sedgwick that make him kind of interesting. 
And in your opinion, why does that develop with Sedgwick when some of his contemporaries maybe were not that way? Mm-hmm. What about him maybe leads him to be, I think, more concerned about the, the individuals under his command? Sedgwick, I think, develops the way he does because unlike a whole lot of officers who have families, mm-hmm. Sedgwick stays with his troops. Right. Mm-hmm. Sed- I mean, he has these wonderful letters that come from Fort fill-in-the-blank uh, back to his sister back in Connecticut that talk about, well, I went out with this patrol. I went out to mm-hmm. that patrol. We're building barracks. The men are going to be taken care of this winter. For him, it's not a quartermaster report. For him, it's not something that's a part of admin or anything like that. He's living it because he's made it a priority to make sure that the men's barracks go up before his quarters are finished. Maybe the fact that he never married had something yeah, to do with that. Yeah. The army is literally his family. Right. No wife in, or in children. Case, no wife or children. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and, and that's clearly important to him. If you read his letters, he'll talk about a number of officers who have just joined the garrison and their wives are staying home or their wives might be coming out or he's still mourning the loss of his wife and or he just found out that his son died of cholera or something like that. He's very aware of his uh, his junior officers who have families and how their family situations are going, which is part of knowing your people and mm-hmm. knowing the dynamics in your unit and all that sort of thing. But he doesn't have those things. And so by extension, it's... Yeah, his soldiers. And I think he he more than the other senior commanders we can think of, he has that experience. And I think maybe that's what we, I, I think maybe that's what we see playing out here. And again, since he never told us, I might be one hundred percent dead wrong too. Mm-hmm. But that that's if you take the evidence in the form of the comments that he makes in his letters and and accumulate it over time, his interest and his Genuine concern for the welfare of his soldiers is genuine and long-term and not something that's just brought on by the Civil War. It's already part of his default going into the war. And a light bulb kind of went on in my head when you're talking about the transfer from artillery out to a more active command. And if you're, say, at a coastal fortification in New York Harbor or elsewhere, you have a little more creature comforts than you do out on the plains. And I think that makes a little more attuned to when you don't have things, how important it is, or those you're in command of, to have those things. I mean, the idea, he gets their barracks built before mm-hmm. his own. That's a major leadership lesson. I, if I was under his command, I'd say, this guy mm-hmm. cares about me. Yeah. And that says a lot. And and just when you're saying, okay, you don't have as much, as many creature comforts, when he writes about being out west, he actually has a fine eye for detail of terrain mm-hmm. and... Yeah. Um, environmental conditions and that sort of thing. I mean, he knows what heat can do to soldiers because he's been out riding in the heat with his soldiers. Uh, He knows about the need for his men to get water because he's been out in the desert with his troops when they needed water. And he'll talk about these things in his letters uh, to the point where, I mean, he understands the kinds of stresses and how they have an impact on individual soldiers and their ability to carry out the mission that he's that he's trying to accomplish. Um, I'm not sure that there's tons and tons of other soldiers who end up being senior leaders in the Civil War who have that kind of experience that close to the war. Mm -hmm. Maybe they did back in Mexico, but that was 15 years ago. Sedgwick had his last week. 
you know, I think that might make a difference. And we, we recently did a number of episodes in James Longstreet. And Jim, you commented on Longstreet's kind of varied yeah. background and yeah. I think how that influences him. And right. I think Sedgwick kind of strikes me as a similar one. He had real life experience in campaigning, not right. here in the garrison of D.C. You know, and that's a good point. And we as historians, when we're on the battlefield as tour guides or whatever, will often shorthand the story and say things like, well, you know, a lot of these guys didn't have significant mm-hmm. combat experience prior to the Civil War or combat experience at this level prior to the Civil War. But when you look at a guy like a Longstreet or a guy like a Sedgwick, who's a lifer, you know, they're career mm-hmm. army officers. And I think you've made a good point that uh, very diverse experience helps well round them, make them well-rounded, you know, into the officers that they're going to be in 1863. Well, we always make the comment about Emory Upton and how unusual his career was because yeah. he goes from cadet to two-star general in four years, and he commanded regulars and volunteers, and he commanded infantry, cavalry, and artillery. Well, you know, okay, Sedgwick is older, but and he only jumps from major to two-star general, but he has that same kind of breadth of experience. Yeah. yeah. Um, but he wasn't around to do anything with it, so we forget. Right. But you know, fine. But you know, what other officers can we think of that have that breadth of experience, recent experience, mm-hmm. but with enough seniority of rank to actually make immediate application with it mm-hmm. uh, of it? Yeah, that's. Mm-hmm. That's not a part of Sedgwick that we usually think about. Right, right. And again, I touch on, you mentioned that he was wounded during the seven days. He's wounded at Antietam. Obviously, we know how this story is going to end. So this is a guy who is out there and is not afraid to uh, to get out in front. I had a question, but I, you looked like you were going to say something. Well, I was going to say, too, I think the idea that he does not have a wife, he doesn't have kids... Think about when we talked about Richard Ewell, yeah. how Ewell changes after mm-hmm. he gets married right. and after he gets a family and other officers. Right, which you see that a lot. You know, when you do not have those more personal responsibilities, you can devote yourself to your troops and also expose yourself to danger a little mm-hmm. bit more. You don't have the consequences mm-hmm. that maybe a general that has a wife and three kids may. Yeah. I think Ewell's a good example yeah, of that. Yeah. Well, the other question is just simply, where is a general's position on a battlefield? Mm-hmm. That's always open for consideration and for, for debate. I mean, we have everything here from Hancock. There's sometimes when a corps commander's life doesn't mm-hmm. matter. Um, and then there are other times when we debate, you should General Reynolds have been out at front, in front on the <laughs> right. first day. Right. So, okay, one guy gets kind of slammed for being out front, and yeah. the other guy gets glorified for being mm-hmm. out front. What? Which way are we going to go with yeah. this? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's all situational, but it, it's just one of those things. Sedgwick, Sedgwick wasn't really that far out on the front lines when he got hit. I mean, he, mm-hmm. he was mm-hmm. doing what he should have been doing, just going up and down his lines and making sure that the artillery yeah. was deployed correctly and all that. And he was just doing his job. Yeah, a thousand I mean, yards. He, he yeah. wasn't standing up for the purpose of, look <laughs> look at me, guys, rally on me. I'm being brave. Mm-hmm. You should be brave, too. He was just doing his job when he got hit. And so, so. often it's the outcome. <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah, if Reynolds right. doesn't get killed on July 1st, we go, what a brave yeah, we lead from the front He's leader. We look at this. This is the exact yeah. example. When he gets killed, we go, well, he shouldn't have been there. Yeah. And yeah. I think so a lot of it's situational and yeah. what happens to you. Yeah. And yeah. Well, when we have soldiers here on staff rides, that is actually one of the questions we, we raise. Where where is where should the leader be? Mm-hmm. And and the answer is it's situational. But you know, what what advantages accrue to Reynolds by being up here where he mm-hmm. is? Should he have been farther behind where he could get the big picture? What should what should have happened? And it always engenders a pretty serious discussion. And mm-hmm. uh, 
but but a useful one because today it's oftentimes easier to say, well, I'm 600 miles away in a headquarters watching everything on a computer screen, and I don't have to make that decision. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, someday you might, so you might want to think about that question a bit more seriously. Mm-hmm. So, but but Sedgwick, if the situation calls for him to be out there, he's going to be there, and it's not an issue. And uh, you know, perhaps we don't need to overthink it too much. Yeah. So 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 I was just going to say. So having said all that. You know, we've painted a fairly positive portrait of Sedgwick up to this point. Uh, nevertheless, history has kind of remembered him as a, a kind of an unaggressive general. Um, you know, we touched on some of the reasons for that, but thinking about the Chancellorsville campaign where, again, he was accused by some as being slow. Uh, you know, kind of two questions here, Carol. The first one would be, did any stigma sort of remain attached to Sedgwick as we moved into the Gettysburg campaign because of Chancellorsville performance? And then maybe second part related to that would be, you know, what are this guy's weaknesses? Yeah. Sedgwick is not really all that politically savvy. Mm-hmm. To some degree, you need a little bit of savviness politically if you're going to thrive in the Army of the Potomac. And I don't think he... I don't think he plays the game or wants to play the game and thus doesn't play it well. I, I, I don't know the, 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 the degree to which I'd call that a problem. Mm-hmm. It's just an, a quirk that makes him different, I yeah, suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, he does have that element of conservatism that there's, there's a right way and a wrong way to do things. That, but you can see that even back when he was an artilleryman and a cavalryman. Mm-hmm. I think he's more comfortable being told what to do Mm. Not being told how to do it, but okay, here's what I want you to do, rather than him having to figure it out for himself, and even up on a corps commander's level. He expects to get support from those, not just those below him, but those above him. When Hooker blames Sedgwick for being too slow at Fredericksburg, uh, Sedgwick will never say it publicly, Mm -hmm. but... He, he, what he's wondering is why isn't Hooker helping me? Yeah. Hooker, mm-hmm. you have the whole rest of the army. If I'm having trouble here, and I'm telling you I have trouble here, uh, y- you have a lot more men than Robert E. Lee does. You can shoot mm-hmm. some back here and help help me out right here. Yeah. Um, the interesting thing f- for me, at least, when dealing with both Chancellorsville and Gettysburg, is that when it was time to write a letter home to his sister, he didn't have time. Or said he didn't. And and I'm curious whether he didn't or if he just decided maybe he was too ticked off or there was just too much going on and just had to do it. But he had one of his staff officers write the letter home, a man by the name of Halstead, who wrote home who wrote to Sedgwick's sister. And he included in it a lot of comments that Sedgwick said or par- or paraphrased what he said. And and that's where my comments just came from. Um the comment that Halstead made was during the Chancellorsville campaign, any su- success our arm that came to our arms, we did. I mean, we, we were the ones who broke through at Fredericksburg. Mm-hmm. He kind of left out what happened at Salem Church, but you know, to the extent there was any success in the Chancellorsville campaign, it was a sixth court that could claim it. We could have had more if Hooker could have sent us you know, some of the guys like the entire first corps or somebody mm-hmm. you know, that, that weren't really engaged in doing any other kind of productive work. And then maybe we could have pushed through. 
Or you, General Hooker, you could have just done more in Chancellorsville so Lee couldn't have allowed some of his men to be detached to come over and stop mm -hmm. us at Salem Church. Why are you dumping it all on me? Um, because there were things that you could have been doing to help me. And the idea that you sort of create the picture of him as being one that be, he'll carry out his mission and what you tell him to do. Obviously, there's not a lot of communication from Hooker out to him yeah. at Chancellorsville. In many ways, he's kind of the forgotten core there. There has to be a lot of confusion mm -hmm. in terms of what do you want me to do? How far should I push here? What what do I do if I don't have that overall picture mm -hmm. of what my role is? I can see how that could be problematic for and, someone and like Sedgwick. by May 3rd, when this is an issue, Hooker's already been stunned and he's not right, in a right, position to right. make any decisions. Mm -hmm. And so there's information that maybe Hooker, if it had full senses, mm -hmm. uh, would have sent back, but it didn't. So, okay, maybe Sedgwick is blaming Hooker for things that Hooker couldn't have done. But then again, well, you know, this is friction. This is the fog mm -hmm. of war. This, this mm -hmm. is what happens. Yeah. And so there was probably a little bit of blame on both sides. Okay, Sedgwick did not show significant initiative to keep to look for other ways to make something happen. On the other hand, Hooker or anybody who was working with Hooker, there was nobody over there to say, you know, Sedgwick needs help. What can we what, what, what can we do to help him? There is a two two way street there. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that I think that there was a lesson to come out with this, I think there there is one, but I'm not sure anybody can draw a straight line from Chancellorsville mm -hmm. to Gettysburg right. in this regard. <laughs> Sedgwick might have been able to do more if it had if it had some reinforcements. Mm -hmm. One of the big things that Meade does here at Gettysburg, but doesn't always get credit for, is his magnif magnificent use of reinforcements at really key times. Mm -hmm. um, if we take a look at the Civil War's early battles, once the, the armies are engaged, the only people who fight are the armies or the forces that were engaged. Mm -hmm. It was really hard for senior commanders on either side to figure out how to feed more troops in, how to shift reinforcements from quiet spot, spots to busy spots. Uh, if it happens like at First Bull Run when a train sh shows up with a bunch of reinforcements from the Shenandoah Valley at the right place at the right time, yay. Mm -hmm. But that's more an accident than a plan. Mm -hmm. And so we just don't see that that kind of thing happening. And here, here at Gettysburg, we know that uh, General Meade is busily moving troops from quiet sectors to busy sectors and doing it almost like, of course I know what I'm supposed to do mm -hmm. here. But, you know, shifts 12th Corps over to, toward Sickles' line and all those kinds of things going on to the point where after the battle, General Howard, who we don't usually give a lot of credit to, writes that wonderful letter to Abraham Lincoln saying that, okay, I know you're upset that we didn't crush Lee's army and all that, but take a moment to think about what we did do mm -hmm. and take a look at, you know, we've never had the army work together as one unit as well as it did at Gettysburg due to the efforts of the uh, the army commander mm -hmm. and his use of reserves, specifically mentioning the use of reserves. Right. Uh, has never been done as well as it was at Gettysburg. And when we get to Gettysburg, a lot of that's going to be the Sixth Corps. And a lot Corps. of it's going to be the Sixth Corps. But, you know, if if I'm Howard and I'm really focused on what happened to Chancellorsville, um, the, a, a good lesson to see happening in Gettysburg following through is the use of reserves. And the one place where reserves really could have been helpful there is if somebody would have gotten some to Sedgwick. Mm -hmm. So maybe there is a connection, mm -hmm. and maybe there's not. Okay. Maybe, but if I'm talking about what do we see 
if, if we take a look at the whole war and say, what kind of changes do we see developing over time? From this point on, we're going to see a whole lot more use of reserves or moving troops around yeah. uh, when armies are already in contact than we would have early in the war. But then we can bring up things like earthworks and, and a number of other things as well. It's all part of change over time, mm-hmm. which is about... In, in, which is history. You know, and related to that, that period where you go now from Chancellorsville to Gettysburg, people often forget that when you look at that Hooker to Meade transition, Sedgwick was one of the guys considered for the top job. And, it, you know, it might have just been primarily due to his rank, but we always talk about Reynolds being considered, and we often leave Sedgwick out of that conversation. Did he mention... Any aspirations of this in his letter to his sister? At oh, all? he was delighted he didn't get it. Okay, what did he say? Um, I, I think one of the neatest comments, I, I didn't jotted it down because it cracked me up. We don't think of John Sedgwick as a funny guy. <laughs> sure we do. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, on November 16, 1863, he's writing a letter back home to his uh, sister, and he says that General Meade is 20 years older than when he took command. <laughs> and, you know, that, that's just a really good line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, oh, Uncle John. Yeah. So, no, I, I don't get the feeling that he was uh, offended by being passed over by any stretch of the imagination. I think he was delighted just the way it turned out. Do we have any surviving correspondence on the Lincoln, Halleck, War Department side that might indicate, you know... What? Could, no, yeah, okay. not, not that I'm aware of. There wasn't anything of, yeah. I was aware of either. Uh-huh. Okay. But, I mean, I take a look at it this way. Everybody seems to think that Meade is going to solve 500 problems at the same time mm-hmm. on the day he takes over command of an army that he had no clue that he was going to command 24 hours before. When Halleck sent the word to Meade to, uh, that he was now in charge, he essentially gave Meade his own commander's intent. Whenever we're talking to soldiers, we talk about the requirement of a senior commander to issue a clear commander intent. Here's what I want you to do. Here's what the point of this operation is. We are fighting this battle for this outcome. You don't just go in and fight randomly. There's a purpose. And the one one very positive thing that Halleck did for me is he gave him his commander's intent. You have two jobs here. You have a defensive mission, protect Washington and Baltimore. You have an offensive mission, go and find and fight Lee. That's two things. Now, you're George Meade. You've just taken command of the Army. Your head is spinning in 500 different directions. The one thing you probably know is where your horse is, and that's about it. You don't know where your army is. You don't know where Lee's army is. You don't know much of anything at all. But you have this paper telling you this is what you have to do. The only thing you do know out of everything that's just dumped on you is that you do know where Baltimore and Washington are. Mm-hmm. Nothing else. So one of the things you have to do is you got to make sure that you have a good force in position to protect the avenues of advance toward Washington and Baltimore. If Lee's army is up in Pennsylvania, those roads are going to go somewhere around, well, gee, exactly where the Sixth Corps ends up. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't necessarily think that's a mistake at all. Mm -hmm. Let's take a brief pause to thank tonight's sponsor, Getty's Gear. You can find them in Gettysburg at 777 Baltimore Pike or always online at gettysgear.com. They have gourmet coffee, cigars, dog treats, stuffies for your kids, and much, much more. 
So stop by and see our friends at Getty's Gear. Support them like they support us. If you take a look and see what Meade does very early on, he divides his army into wings and that sort of thing. Uh, the offensive mission he gives to Reynolds. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. The defensive mission essentially falls into Sedgwick's lap. That makes sense, too. Now, how much of that he sat down and said, this, does this all make sense? I don't know, and none of right. us do. But when you look at it, that makes a heck of a lot of sense. And, you know, when you take a look at the Pipe Creek line and see who's on the right flank, right. which it happens to be mm-hmm. closest to the avenues of advance yep. the Confederate Army coming out of Pennsylvania would use to get toward Washington and Baltimore, who's sitting there? Sedgwick. Mm-hmm. If I'm looking at my core commanders and I want to pick somebody who's going to be a tough defender, I'm probably going to Sedgwick. I don't have a problem with any of that. And sometimes in history, it's what didn't happen sometimes is as important as what happens. And I think Sedgwick doesn't get the attention because we focus more on Reynolds because we know that Mm -hmm. he's going to initiate the combat on July 1st. And And another death. (laughs) And another death. And with Sedgwick, it doesn't happen, but he has a critical mission Mm -hmm. to protect that. I mean, as as you noted protect Washington, protect Baltimore. Yeah. And it's he's the guy that's protecting Baltimore, essentially. And, and like I say, it, it, since we know that there's a battle, we focus on the offensive mm-hmm. mission. And we all get we, and we get all tied up with, okay, Meade's sounding awfully defensive. But early on, when he's writing those initial things, the only hard evidence he has, the only solid stuff he has to work with, are things that support his defensive mission. I mean, you read his art, his whole thing about setting up the Pipe Creek line, and it's that last line. We will shift to offensive operations as opportunities present. Oh, okay, we're not locked in. I mean, mm-hmm. that's an awfully important line, yeah. but it's real easy to to downplay it when 98% of what you've just read has been uh, defensively oriented. So here we have a, a, an interesting situation. If 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 I know what I know about my senior commanders. And, and Meade, as a corps commander, pretty much knows his, his peers. And you take a, look at, uh, take a look at him. I know John Reynolds. I've served with him. He, and, in fact, he's been my commanding officer. I have a lot of trust in him. We talk a lot in, on staff rides about the importance of um, professional relationships. Mm-hmm. And, okay, there's a good one right there. I would trust him, uh, Reynolds, with that. Hancock has only been a corps commander now for a couple of weeks. Which people often forget. Yes. So, okay, I I like him. I can trust him in certain things, but he hasn't commanded a corps in battle yet, and so, Mm -hmm. no, I don't really feel good about having him in that. Sickles is Sickles. (laughs) (laughs) Time out for coughing. Okay, Uh, but, you know, in this case, Sickles is Sickles. Sykes only becomes a corps commander when me gets promoted. Howard has Chancellorsville in the immediate background. Slocum's always a big question mark, at least in my mind. Uh, who do you got here? Sedgwick. Okay, that, that that works for me as far as who am I going to trust with these important missions? Offensive Reynolds, defensive Sedgwick. Okay, and then everybody else will fill in their roles uh, elsewhere. It, it all makes – there's a certain amount of sense in all yeah. that. Mm-hmm. So. Um, but like I say, we get so caught up in the offensive piece of the mission that brings them to Gettysburg and oftentimes reduce the defensive mission into, oh, that's Meade's mindset. Mm-hmm. There's more to it than that. And I think that's what we might be seeing here. So do we want to talk maybe now a little bit more about the Sixth Corps itself? Because we don't really talk a lot about yeah. these men. We, we mentioned them, 
But how many people have heard of Horatio Wright and people like this? <laughs> well, or, and if, you know, if or we were, Lewis Grant and the Vermont Brigade. Yeah. People, right. You know, if we were going to quiz people right now and say, rattle off the Sixth Corps order of battle, I guarantee that would be the hardest one for people to uh, to come up with. <laughs> and it's why I still keep a, I have a binder. Like, I'm sure most of you have seen this when we're out on the battlefield. We usually have our binder. I, I brought my Sixth Corps at Gettysburg binder with me, and I keep an order of battle right on the back cover because it's the one we know the least about. And, you know, okay, I got my division commanders and brigade commanders down now, but I still need a little help on occasion for that stray regiment sure. here and there. So, yeah, I have, I'm not at all shy about keeping it right there. Well, even... Um, a couple of years ago when I took the guide exam in 2015, mm -hmm. I don't believe there was a six-core question on it. On the exam? Yeah, I don't recall one. I so, kind of joked about that. Well, gee, I should have should have so, ignored the six-core. So basically, I'll we should... fix that next yeah. time. Uh, you know, yes, <laughs> yeah. I appreciate Note to right. future guide applicants, there yeah. will be six-core questions. Just, no, the... there was one. The regiment on Powers Hill. That's right. There it oh, is. That, there you go. Okay. I, was, okay. I was about to invalidate the entire <laughs> class of 2016, yeah. but you just no, saved No, the it regiment there. on Powers okay. Hill. Right. That's a six-score question. <laughs> so, and I'm, sure, and I'm sure that comes up on your tours all the time. <laughs> well, it's funny. I actually... Oh, stop. You're not, no, no, no. <laughs> I actually, a couple weeks ago, I had back-to-back -back days. People had a connection to the six-core. Oh, okay. <laughs> and what are the odds that on two days mm -hmm. on random tours, I'm talking about That's the six-core? Six yeah. And uh, so, yeah, it, it, it's an interesting corps because I think they're one of the more underappreciated corps well, in the Army of the Potomac. They, that was one of those artificially created corps. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. When Lincoln originally put his together, he had four. And, and he appointed the corps commanders, and McClellan was ticked off because he had no say in it. So he sort of creates two more, the fifth and sixth, and puts his own people um, in, in command of those corps. And so the Sixth Corps was kind of was a McClellan creation uh, in that regard. But the Sixth Corps as created is not the Sixth Corps that comes to Gettysburg. Mm -hmm. There was, when, when those first corps were created, for, there was a, they were the first, second, third, and fourth. Now we know that by the time we get to Gettysburg, there's no fourth corps. But one of the divisions that's in the Sixth Corps at Gettysburg had been a fourth corps. Mm -hmm. The unit at one point. It's late as Antietam. So it, it's a little hodgepodge of this, that, and the other thing. It doesn't have a history as a core the way some of the other ones would. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, the first core mm -hmm. obviously has a, it has been mixed and remixed a number of times, but it's not like the second or third. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's a little different in that regard. It's a, started out with a Franklin as its commander, but Sedgwick, of course, is the one who picked up with it in the beginning of 63. And it's his name that's identified with the Sixth Corps more than mm -hmm. anybody else. Um, right here at Gettysburg, it's going to have uh, be divided into three divisions, just like uh, most corps are. Um, Horatio Wright was an engineer, commands the first division. Um, had a lot to do with some of the uh, architecture around Washington, D.C. Uh, he had not had very much troop exp experience before the war broke out, was another one of those engineers that got promoted to brigadier general, and did okay, but there was nothing particularly spectacular about him. It doesn't seem like there's anybody, hardly anybody in the Sixth Corps that just stands out as the aggressive fighter. They're all, they all seem to be somehow a reflection of Sedgwick. They say that the commander sets the the, the tone or the climate, and I think there's a lot of that going on here to some to some degree. Um, Albion P. Howe commands the 2nd Division. 
he he's interesting. Yeah, he's interesting, right? He's part of uh, Robert E. Lee's group, I think. At um, the captures John Brown at Harper's Ferry. Um, I think he's part of the Lincoln Honor Guard, but he has he has an interesting contribution to the Gettysburg historiography because of the Joint Committee on the yeah. Conduct of the War. He's, he's one of the guys that comes out very much anti Meade. Anti Meade, you know. And again, yeah. we always just think of that as Sickles and Doubleday, and we forget there are other guys. Yeah. And you probably, if you were scratching anybody's brain, probably nobody in the room would say Sickles, Doubleday, and Albion Howe. Yeah, but he's a little embittered about being removed from command afterwards. I think and. And considering that Howe didn't even have a chance to command his division here, his, <laughs> his division got divided into mm -hmm. bits and pieces and sent different places to the point where he didn't have a command. Yeah, his official report uh, is like three paragraphs. Yeah, um, yeah. Even General Sedgwick, uh, well, well, we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but uh, Howe's, Howe's a, a, an odd one. Uh, the third division commander is John Newton, and of course... Even before that, the Sixth Corps has gotten here, John Newton has already gotten the word that you're going to command First Corps with John Reynolds, and uh, Frank Wheaton will take over the... Uh, Can I interrupt the there? Yeah. Because we have a mutual friend, Harry Smeltzer, yep. who, and we also have a mutual friend, Colonel Paul, Paul Bailey, Bailey, who, of course, is probably... Mr. John Newton. Mr. John <laughs> Newton. Paul, super fan Paul from Iceland. Here's a shout out. Nice so, pictures, by the way, Paul. So... <laughs> Harry and Paul, there's often this debate about, you know, when was Newton sort of told he was going to be moving over to the First Corps? I'm just curious. Do you have any line in the sand on that? Line in the sand is would be way too hard, mm -hmm. way too harsh. But uh, if you read some of the Sixth Corps accounts, like the Stevens' uh, Life in the Sixth Corps, um, he basically seems to suggest that the while the Sixth Corps is still in Maryland, when the order comes down to, you know, get yourselves up here. And by the way, when you know, Newton's going to take over First Corps, that Newton already knows that. It's not like they arrive here and, yo, Newton, right. you okay. over to First Corps. Right. Uh, I think he already knows that. Still, it is it, it, it is kind of interesting. If if you take a look at this and you have Wright and Howe and Newton, it, it you have three experienced division commanders. And if you're going to put your troops on the road, it probably doesn't make a difference who's out front. But if all of a sudden Newton, you know, is going to be gone, and Wheaton is the new guy, and all he commanded was a brigade until this point, um, do you put that division in a position where it's going to have to deploy into battle first? Mm -hmm. Wouldn't you give that to one of your more experienced commanders? Because as it turns out, on the second day, when the Sixth Corps finally arrives, uh, after it's... Uh, March, and I want to say a few things about the march. The first brigade, Sixth Corps brigade to go into action will be Colonel Nevins's brigade, which was Wheaton's brigade. Right. Which is, I mean, we have a brigade under a, a new commander who found out he was commander like 24 hours ago, under in a division with a commander who's been a division commander for 24 hours. And that's probably not the best thing to do in this situation, but um, time was of the essence. Mm -hmm. and probably overtook itself but um it's it's worth taking a, a few minutes though to take a look at the the march and six corps usually to the extent people talk about the six corps participation mm -hmm. in gettysburg it's almost always focused on the march to get here right and we should not underestimate that or dismiss it because it was an awesome achievement mm -hmm. i mean they start out around bristow station on about the 26th of june and they're putting in 25 miles plus a day in 
interesting, in, in tough circumstances. They are sort of out on the uh, eastern edge of the Army of the Potomac as they're moving uh, forward. Again, it's it's not by reading Sedgwick's own stuff that you find out. It's by reading the regimental reports and uh, some of the Six Corps memoirs where they talk about things that affect the soldier on the march. Uh, one of the things, of course, they talk about is the extreme heat and how soldiers are dropping from not just physical exhaustion, but from heat stroke. There are six core soldiers who die of heat stroke on the march north. Um, combination of exhaustion, water stress, things like that. We know of a number of officers in a variety of corps who get arrested on the march north for letting mm -hmm. their soldiers stop and fill canteens right. and right. all that sort of thing. Well, I mean, it's a serious problem. This kind of goes back to the earlier comments about how you were more focused on completing the mission than taking care of your men because now today they'd say in order to complete our mission, we do have to take care of our men, mm -hmm. and they would have taken care of things like water, but that wasn't necessarily a factor back then. The thing that pops up in a lot of Sixth Corps memoirs about the march that I don't really see in other corps is the extensive concerns they have about Mosby's men and you know, guerrilla operations, as they were kept calling them, that if you happen to straggle, if you fell out of ranks. They said if you were lucky, the cavalry, Union cavalry coming up behind would just sort of scoop you up and take care of you, or the provost guard would. They said, but in many cases, it was going to be the Confederates who, who scooped you up and you were going to find yourself off in prison camp. You don't read that in episodes of the March of the Second Corps or the First Corps or the other ones, but you do in Sixth Corps. Mm -hmm. And so that adds an element to their march that um, makes their experience a little bit different. Mm. They're among those who will cross the uh, Potomac last, and they're going to enjoy the hospitality of Maryland towns. Now, almost every account of the Army of the Potomac marching into Maryland, we were greeted with the happy people who are giving us food and, and water and milk and this and that and the other thing. Sixth Corps have an awful lot of accounts of, and then they gave us whiskey. And then, and, and then, I mean, there are some interesting accounts of Sixth Corps guys just flat out drunk along the side of the road, having a wonderfully good time. Um, maybe we should congratulate them for their honesty, <laughs> or maybe, or, or their element of realism that they're putting into the story, but those accounts are a little bit different. So if they're comp compounding the difficulty of the march with the various challenges, some of them created by they themselves, um, it, it's quite a march to, to get here. And it just is interesting. Whenever you read the reports of the various brigade and division commanders, they become obsessed by numbers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, it's not just we had a long march. We marched 34 miles today. We marched 28 miles today. And I don't know how they measured any of it, actually, mm -hmm. and how much of it might be exaggeration, except you can put it up against a map and you can mm -hmm. say, yeah, it's pretty darn close, and and make it all work out. But their march was the longest, and especially the last march, the march on July 1st going into, into July 2nd, uh, where it was over 30 miles, no mm -hmm. matter how you look at it. And you can't just say it's because they got lost. No, they were trying to find a more effective, more direct route to, to get here. 30 miles in a day. Come on. We don't do that now. Mm -hmm. um, but they did. And they did it as a core. 
and not all of them got here in one one piece, but there are enough comments by enough soldiers saying we could hear the battle out ahead, we could see the wounded men coming back. They were telling us how bad it was. The morale was of a sort that they said we're going to go forward. Mm -hmm. And when it, when it came time for the Sixth Corps to get into action, they were able to contribute yeah. right away. That says something, too. They didn't have to have a long period to catch and refresh and make coffee and, and all that sort of thing. They arrived. They went into into action. And it was really interesting to see the handoff. When the Sixth Corps arrives and Sedgwick sends the message to, to me, you know, we're here, the message comes back, okay, okay, Newton, you, you go take care of First Corps. Wheaton, you now have that... That division, oh, Sixth Corps, your artillery brigade handed over to Hunt, mm -hmm. and it became part of, of Hunt's ability to take the artillery reserve and all the other guns and put on the incredible display of artillery power that we see here. And Sedgwick just goes, yes, sir. Yeah. And he doesn't argue about it. That doesn't mean he was happy about it. Again, Halstead, the uh, the officer who likes to, who ends up writing the, the messages to uh, Sedgwick's sister, is going to say that at some point, Cedric looked around and realized that he didn't have troops left to, to, to command, and he said, no, I might as well go home. Um, <laughs> uh, and the thing is, I can see Cedric saying that, mm -hmm. but he wouldn't have, and we know that. And he, he was happy to, to, if that was what he was called upon to do to contribute to victory, he's cool with it. Yeah couple things strike me there. Obviously, when I think of that story, I'm struck by the irony of the fact that here we are talking about unaggressive, slow-moving John Sedgwick mm -hmm. in the Chancellorsville campaign. Lo and behold, who has to make that, yep. you know, forced march during the last And the thing to hours. add in there is there are a number of counts that when those troops are on the road, Sedgwick made himself visible yeah, during that march. Right. It's not like I'm asking you to do it, but I'm not going to. And he's not do in his ambulance somewhere. No, he's, he's right on there. horseback with his staff, and he makes himself visible at several points along the line of march, so that when the soldiers are marching by, Uncle John is with us. He's sharing the difficulty of the march. That's excellent leadership. Yeah, and thanks. I'm glad you mentioned that. The other thing, too, though, that I'd like to clarify about their arrival, because I actually get asked about this a lot. So during this, when I wrote the Sickles book. Um, I did some analysis around the fact that Meade basically tells Halleck at 3 p.m., quote, the Sixth Corps is just coming in, very much worn out, having been marching since 9 p.m. last night. So I very often hear from readers who ask me to clarify that comment. Jim, did the whole Sixth Corps arrive at 3 o'clock? Jim, did they go yeah. right into action? Jim, I thought they got here earlier than 3 o'clock. And part of my point with all of that is what you've touched on with the use of reserves, because once the Sixth Corps starts to arrive, and of course, no, they're not all arriving on time at 3 o'clock, mm -hmm. but that gives me, in part, the flexibility then to move the Fifth Corps from the right to the left, and they will obviously be instrumental in addressing, you know, what we'll call today the Sickles situation. Yeah. Um, a, a corps arrives when the commanding officer reports it in. Right. And so as soon as Sedgwick is within yelling distance and sends a staff officer forward saying, we're here, it's more or less, it's not we're here, but it's we're almost here, where right. do you want us? Mm -hmm. I mean... I don't want to just show up and, and screw up the works that, that's already in place. We're on our way. Where do you want us now that we're on the verge of being here? Um, so that, that's at about 3 o'clock. Right, exactly. So by 
the time Nevins's brigade is going to participate in that last action, which is going to be closer to six, um, that allows them to close, that allows them to deploy, because nobody knows exactly where they're going to have to mm-hmm. go in. I mean, some of these guys are up on the northern slope of Little Round Top rather than shifted a little bit farther north to, to go into their attack. And they had to get around some Fifth Corps troops to be able to do it. So th- there was nothing like you go here and, and and attack right now. They had to find their slot and all that. Mm-hmm. That takes time. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, uh, so yeah, and, and we don't want to put a, a stopwatch on any of well, this. Well, that's what mm-hmm. I was going to yeah. say. I, we don't want to get into one of these what time was it conversations. Yeah. But just for the record, Meade says three o'clock. Sedgwick says during the afternoon. You get guys like Wright and Torbert who push it closer to four o'clock. And kind of the point that I. I think we want to make here is that again they're not arriving on mass yeah. at three o'clock right. it's stretched out as fourteen thousand men on the march would be well sure i mean if you're sedgwick and you're getting close three o'clock staff officer go and tell Meade we're here yeah uh wright and torbert say uh, are actually arriving on the field at four the attack once you have everybody lined up might not be until five five thirty mm-hmm. or six yeah it it makes sense as long as you don't try to put a clock of on course, it and say, right, yeah, right, exactly. Right. And, and we know that there are people who try to do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, in this battle and in others. And in yeah. others. Yeah. And okay, fine. And and maybe you're dead on right. If, you want maybe, it, if yeah. your timing model says it happened at 3.04 p.m., good for you. Go for right. it. You know, yeah. kind of thing. Uh, but by and large, you know, we can't always agree right, right. now today on what time is it. So good luck with that. And for me, some takeaways... I think when the 6th Corps begins to arrive, it's maybe in that afternoon of July 2nd, the first time George Meade can maybe breathe just Mm -hmm. a little bit. It it gives him some options. It gives him some flexibility. And I think also when you look at the history of the 6th Corps, they're going to see heavy action in the Overland Campaign. They're going to see heavy action in the Shenandoah Valley. And they're going to break through in April 2nd. The defining moment for a lot of these veterans yeah, is it, the march, which it, is very interesting. Yeah, if you take a look at the Sixth Corps, like I say, the Sixth Corps, as originally created in eighteen early eighteen sixty two, but March is not the Sixth Corps of Gettysburg. Mm-hmm. And if you take a look at its individual regiments before Gettysburg, the Sixth Corps' combat record is pretty thin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you have a couple regiments that were at first bull first bull run. You have a couple of regiments that were involved at Lee's Mill, for Pete's sakes. In the seven days, they aren't at Mechanicsville, Gaines mm-hmm. Mill, or um, Malvern Hill. They're at um, Savage Station. You know, they're, they're not at the, at the big ones. They aren't at Second Manassas. They're at Crampton's Gap, but mm-hmm. they're not really at Antietam, um, except really late in the day. Um, get players at Fredericksburg. Okay, so here comes Salem Church and Cedric, Second Fredericksburg, but that's May of 1863. Mm-hmm. They won't see a lot here. If you take a look at the casualty records for Six Corps <laughs> regiments, it's 1864 yeah. when they make their mark. And, and that's when you'll see, like, the Vermont Brigade lose at the Wilderness. Mm-hmm. Which one, of, one of the favorite es- essays I ever wrote was the essay that I wrote on the Vermont Brigade in the Wilderness mm-hmm. and found out just how incredibly rich the source material was and a lot of it hadn't been used yet, um, just because you know, it just sort of seemed like so much of the writing on the war, and, and I think we've all felt this, has, has focused on Gettysburg and before, mm-hmm. and then until Gordon Ray 
sort of introduced us all to the uh, Overland campaign. That that's sparked mm-hmm. a lot more interest there. But I mean, how much do it we have on Petersburg? And mm-hmm. I mean, Will Green seems to be single handedly trying to get us in that direction. Great, mm-hmm. and, and and all that. But most of our interest as a nation in the Civil War has been Gettysburg and earlier than mm-hmm. and then. So we miss out on a lot of the battles when the Sixth Corps really does its thing. We still don't have a, we still don't know nearly as much as we need to know about the Shenandoah in '64. Mm-hmm. So, and I think with the and six, that's Sixth Corps, and I think with the Sixth Corps especially, the Vermont Brigade is one of my favorite brigades in the entire war. And I often, whenever I do go on Wright Avenue of someone, you know, they have a beautiful monument here. But I show the brigade marker, mm-hmm. and I think it's what one wounded. One killed. One killed. Okay, yeah, yeah I know. Killed. It's like yeah. one. They just and I make that point. They said, in many ways, the worst is still to come mm-hmm. in the American Civil War, and people are shocked by that because we talk about things like Antietam mm-hmm. and we yeah. talk about Shiloh and these other battles. A lot of veterans of this battle will note that the wilderness was the heaviest fighting they ever saw, mm-hmm. and these are some guys that were in the wheat field. These yeah. are guys that yeah. were in some pretty tough spots here, and they're saying the wilderness is the worst we saw, and it gets. Only worse from there. And, you know, when we often talk about, obviously, the low reported casualties mm-hmm. of the Sixth Corps at Gettysburg, you know, 1.7% for the entire Corps. But you kind of just touched on it. Grant's brigade always stands out to me mm-hmm. because the casualties are 0.05%. Mm-hmm. And off the top of my head, I think that's the only infantry red brigade uh, at the Battle of Gettysburg that actually goes two decimal points below <laughs> 1%. So a shout out to Grant's brigade for those 0.05%. Can we put that on the next guide things. exam? Sure. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, all right. Yeah, very good. And of course, that's the other Grant. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Well, yeah. where was yes. Grant? Well, he's out on right <laughs> yeah, Avenue. Exactly. Uh, exactly. No, I thought he was at Vicksburg. No, yeah. no, no, no. And you touched- but, it, but it's great for that moment of total confusion yeah. that's on mm-hmm. people's faces. But as tour guides, you touched on it. Yeah. I love that monument. Yeah, it's a beautiful I love monument. The, right? The monument with the lion and everything. I love that monument. And it's just a shame that people don't get, get a chance to see it. Lewis Grant, interestingly enough, has a. After the war, I think he is either Secretary of War, Acting Secretary of War. <laughs> he is the individual that sees to it the three individuals from the Ninth Vermont yeah. at Newport Barracks okay. receive their Medals of cool. Honor. Good for him. So there's a little cool. Vermont home cooking right there, yeah, looking out for the state. For him. Yeah, for him. So. You know, Carol, you touched on the artillery being parsed all over the field because if you look or put into the reserve, I guess would be a better way of saying that. But, you know, if you look at the casualty rates, Tompkins Artillery Brigade comes in at 1.3% losses. And you think, well, geez, compared to the fact that you didn't really have any losses in the infantry, how did they get any losses in the artillery? And Cowan's, Cowan's battery. Exactly. <laughs> Cowan's got yeah. 12% casualties. Right. And he basically covers all of the losses for the entire 6th Corps artillery. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I did on the field program was to have the assembled multitude form the uh, the fish hook. And sometimes, since so many of us are visual learners, you can read it all you want, but until you see it, you, you just don't see it. So I made everybody form the fish hook. So in your mind, form that fish hook. Draw it on a piece of paper. And then I handed out color-coded cards with the brigade commander's names on it. And so you would expect all the red ones to be in one location, all the white ones to be in another, and all the blue ones to be in another for first, second, and third. And instead what you saw was them scattered all over the entire line, basically being used as the reserves 
I, I usually say it's like handing General Meade a box, a box of Band-Aids. And he can take the Band-Aid out and put it on any wound he sees bleeding at any given time. And so that's why you're going to see uh, different brigades in, in different places. If General Howe is all upset, well, one of those reasons might be because he had two brigades here. One of them was that first Vermont Brigade. And we've just been talking about where their monument is. It's in the saddle between the round tops on the eastern side. Mm -hmm. If you drive that the road from where the 20th Main is, and a lot of people go, okay, I, I know where that is, and you drive it out, drive out to the Tawny Town Road, you'll pass the monument. But that's not on the tour route, and right. you have to you have to make a positive decision, I'm going that way, in order to see it. But when you do that, you're driving along the line of um, the Vermont Brigade, basically, and it would have been facing south in case General Longstreet did finally right. loop around and make the attack on, on the flank. See what the I flag. did there? Yeah, right. on the right. Yeah. yeah, I got that. And so they're there. <laughs> she should. But <laughs> the, the other brigade in um, Howell's division is Neal's brigade. Mm -hmm. And Neal's brigade yep. is the one that ends up on Wolf's Hill, uh -huh. the 77th New York on Powers Hill as part of Neal's. He doesn't have a division to command. His two brigades are in two very different parts of the battlefield. They happen to be exactly where Meade needs them to mm -hmm. be, but that might be one of the reasons why Howe is ticked off, because he doesn't have a chance to shine or say that he did anything. Yeah, I sent my troops off, and, and, and that's mm -hmm. it. Hey, you got a road named after you. Deal with it. Yeah, you got something out of it. Even if gets, nobody goes yeah. on the road. But. <laughs> yeah. Well, they do if they get lost. Exactly. Yeah. But there's a cul-de-sac there, which yeah. is nice. Yeah. You can turn, right turn around. It's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I did want to get one thing in there, because we've been talking about uh, General Grant. He had a uh, son who he named Ulysses Sherman Grant. Oh, very nice. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that's worthy of notice if we're going to talk about the other Grant. Yeah. You mean the one that was at Vicksburg? Yeah, the other Grant. Yeah, the other Grant. Yeah, yeah, the, other yeah grant. the other guy. Yeah. I think he becomes yeah. president later or something uh, like that. I don't know. Well, we don't I do know that. that. It's not that Gettysburg. It, it, I don't know. Here in some of the Gettysburg um, souvenir shops, you used to be able to get a, a shirt that had Grant's picture on it and then a big red circle would slash through it. <laughs> In order to make the point, I haven't seen them in a number of years, though. But you know, um, we're but, thinking you know. as we just bring our podcast store online. Hmm, yeah, might some need potential. to bring that thing you know, back. Maybe we put a picture of Lewis Grant there and put Grant at Gettysburg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that works that too. Work too. I'd buy that one. But well, we, there we go. We've, okay. we've got one buyer. But we won't give Carol a complimentary copy of our Jackson at Gettysburg t-shirt because she doesn't like the what-if stuff. <laughs> no, so uh -uh. That, that, if that Jackson happened. were at Gettysburg, he would have smelled very bad because know, he's been I dead know, for six I weeks. I know a so. hundred people claim to have originated that yeah. joke. but yeah. uh, No, I don't claim to, to have originated it, but I don't mind sharing it. Sure, and, sure. and fortunately, there were never two battlefield guides that devoted almost two hours to that question and even did a battlefield tour on it. Who yeah, would do something I crazy like that? I wouldn't want to hang out with guides. No, like no, no. no, no, no. <laughs> could, could we talk about then just a little bit, just going back to elaborate then the morning of July 3rd? Yeah, mm -hmm. well, and again, what is today right in Howe Avenue? Mm -hmm. Uh I think it's useful, and I'm not getting into what if history, yeah. but you know, part of analyzing history is the talking about these options. Well, that's called contingency. That. Contingency, exactly. And, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, that was a very responsible thing for me to do. Hmm. I mean, he saw the attack on the second day. He saw it reached out, and it got little round top. What if it reaches a little bit farther? If you're General Meade, you know that you, there are two ro roads that you absolutely need. You need the Tawny Town Road and the Baltimore Pike. Mm -hmm. Neil's Brigade is taking care of your issues on the Baltimore Pike right now. 
Um, right now, there's still that possibility that some Confederates, I mean, they're early on the morning of the 3rd, he gets the intel through the signal system. There's a large body of Confederate troops behind the Confederate right center, intentions unknown. We now know it's Pickett's men. and But we don't know what we're going to mm-hmm. do with them. And at least, but Grant's already thought about these possibilities because after his meeting on the night of the 2nd, and he's trying to figure out how, well, the assembled multitude has said, make corrections in the line. Mm-hmm. And if I'm sitting there saying, what do I think I need to do? Well, they went after my flank yesterday. What if they do it again tomorrow mm-hmm. and maybe reach a little bit farther? I want to have a nice welcoming committee for them. So at first I put uh, Grant's brigade right there. And, you know, we've you've been down there. We've been down there. We've seen it's there. There's two batteries of artillery yep. that are sent mm-hmm. down there. It's a nice open area. Mm-hmm. It's great, great fields of fire. Okay, there's now a blocking brigade in position. And then I'm going to take uh, Russell's brigade out of Wright's uh, division. I'm going to send it down there and extend that line even mm-hmm. more, where I'm going to have a brigade on either side of the Tawny Town yeah. Road. And so if anybody comes around, and we do know that there's that there's a union, uh, you know, there's the union cavalry action coming up that way. Mm-hmm. It's all part of that uh, defense of the flank, but you know, a lot of that stuff it hasn't quite developed yet. So that infantry is there as the blocking force in case something happens. And, and, yeah, it's, and, and not, it's a smart and not a trivial thing in terms of popular history mm-hmm. because we have all been asked or told Lee should have listened to Longstreet and let Longstreet go around to the right. And we got to point out on the morning of July 3rd, not only do you have troops behind the round tops, but they are fresh troops, they have artillery, and they have great fields of fire. And they're uh, facing in the exact direction that they should be if right, you try to go around. Right. So let so, Longstreet try that yeah, move. Yeah, I'd say go ahead. You're, you're going to have a heck of a welcoming committee right. waiting for you. So if I'm General Meade, I've done exactly the right thing. For, for the Army's need. For General Howe's need, I'm not so mm-hmm. sure, but that's what the Sixth Corps is there for. Okay, I've already put Vermont in place. I'm not quite comfortable yet, so I'm now going to take another brigade. Mm-hmm. I, it's from another division. I'm sorry I can't keep it all together, but that's what I need right now. I'm good. So um, needs checked a, checked a concern off his list. and But as far as I'm concerned... Now, let, let's just back up. On the second, the only Sixth Corps brigade that's really involved is Nevins' mm-hmm. brigade, helping to close down the final Confederate assault through the wheat field and all that. When it comes to what the Sixth Corps does on the third, though, I'm really, I, I really like what Shaler's brigade was asked to do. Okay. Shaler's brigade, of course, was out of Newton slash Wheaton's division. And Shaler is the brigade that gets ordered over to Culp's Hill. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they arrive about 8 o'clock. With that, all the rehab that's going on over on Culp's Hill, we're visiting over there a lot more these days. And it's really interesting because the monuments will help tell the story. As you're going uh, up going up on Upper Culp's Hill, we look off to our right, and we can see all the monuments with Star of the Twelfth Corps on them. But if you take a look on the left side of the road, there's a series of four monuments after General Geary's monument, four consecutive monuments that have the Greek cross of the Sixth Corps on it. That's Shaler's Brigade mm-hmm. right there. Um, Batchelder always said, put you know, put the monuments on your line of battle. And, of course, the Sixth Shaler's Brigade is there as reinforcements, so they'd be 
behind the line. The road happens to go in between them, and, and it works out quite nicely. But I love reading the stories about what Shaler's men do up there because this is one of those times when it does when command doesn't go from top down. Sometimes you're confronted with a problem, and you work it out for yourself. And it was simply a matter of... You have six core troop or twelve core troops firing all their ammunition. We need more ammo. We've been fighting here for a long time. Here's fresh six core troops. They have full cartridge boxes, and they just work out a system where a twelve core colonel will just take off his hat and kind of wave. You know, we need help, and six core regiments will swap places mm-hmm. with them. Six core goes and fires for a while while the twelve core gets resupplied. He maybe even has a cup of coffee, and then when they're done, swap them back again. And it's interesting because this doesn't come up out of the core level reports. It comes down from the brigade and regimental mm-hmm. reports. Well, we switch places with this regiment, and and it works out just fine. That is cool mm-hmm. when you think about it. Uh, we have a problem. We figure out a solution. We do it. The tough part is during the exchange when you're a little bit more exposed. And if you like, take a look at the six core regiments, they all suffer a few casualties. One of them, the 122nd, actually takes a good number of mm-hmm. casualties. But then the 122nd wants to really make sure that you don't forget that they were there because they took special pains with their monument. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There were two regiments in the Army from Onondaga County, New York. One was in the 6th Corps, one was in the 12th Corps. They both happened to be on Culp's Hill that day. Now, according to the way the way Batchelder wanted to do it, the 149th Monument should have been on the front line. That's the 12th Corps Regiment. And the 122nd should have been back on the second line. But during the battle itself, they had recognized that they were neighbors and friends. And they were just delighted that the accident of circumstance, accidental circumstances had brought them right on the same line pretty much at the same time. So the 122nd folks basically went out and bought a little piece of property that allowed them to put their monument on their property on the line right next door to the 149th monument. So, so when you go there, take a look as you're driving up the road. You'll find the spot where two monuments are fairly close together, one with the star, one with the Greek cross. And there's a story behind it, as there is with everything else around here. But um, that's just a really cool story. What really intrigues me though, is that that's not where Shaler's story ends. Mm-hmm. After things are taken care of on Culp's Hill, Shaler's brigade is called off the hill, and they end up deployed around the Tawny, on the Tawny Town Road just south of Meade's headquarters as extra added reinforcement in case, of, in case Pickett's charge breaks through. Um, while they're there, one of their lieutenants gets hit in the shoulder with an artillery shell and gets killed in rather dramatic and gory fashion in front of his, their whole command. They didn't suffer. I mean, it's like their last casualty of the day, but it was a fairly dramatic one that got a lot of, uh, of attention. Um, so, like I said, when it came down to it, Shaler's Brigade had a really exciting time mm-hmm. serving in some key spots, key key moments, and being, again, part of Meade's box of Band-Aids mm-hmm. that, you know, wherever I think I need help, I have a Sixth Corps Brigade I can plug in there. And I think Shaler's Brigade has the only Sixth Corps Medal of Honor recipient that I'm aware of, wink, wink, sort of, Captain John Fassett, 23rd Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. So 
He's often listed as Medal of Honor recipient from the 23rd, although on July 2nd, he was actually detached and serving as an aide to General Bernie. I think probably because they're both Philadelphia natives and and basically they knew each other. So when Watson's battery is in the process of getting captured and then recaptured by the Garibaldi Guard, Fassett is the guy who basically goes up to the 39th New York and tries to give him the order to take the guns back. The guy, the Garibaldi guys say, "Who you know? Who are you? I don't have you don't have any authority to do this." And Facet, quick thinking, says, "I'm doing this under orders from General Hancock." And then the Garibaldi, "Oh, okay, very well." And then they move forward, and uh, Facet receives a Medal of Honor for that. Twenty years old. I think that might be the only one in the Sixth Corps that I'm aware of at Gettysburg. So again, wink, mm-hmm. wink, you'll see it listed for mm-hmm. the 23rd PA, even though he was actually detached with our friend General Bernie. So just a little Medal of Honor yeah. news there. But let's go back and take a look at that, you know, how, how we've deployed the Sixth Corps just for giggles again. So you have the fish hook line. So we have Shaler's Brigade mostly on Culp's Hill. Um, that would be out of Newton, Newton slash Wheaton. His other two uh, brigades, Eustace and Wheaton, or Wheaton or Nevins, if you know where Sedgwick's monument is, that's roughly where they're going to spend their time. So we have three brigades in Newton slash Wheaton's brigade, one on Culp's Hill, and two just north of Little Round Top. That's not a division line. That's mm-hmm. that's good separation. Uh, when it comes to Howe's division, he only had two brigades. We put the, the Grants for Monitors down behind the Little Round Top, and we put Neal's Brigade over on Wolf Hill. They're not together either. Um, Horatio Wright's division, the 1st Division, has Torbert's New Jersey guys. Um, well, th- this is the one division that is as close to being together as any division in the Sixth Corps. If we basically draw the line from where Sedgwick's monument is down to where the New Jersey monument is. That's Sixth Corps line. And that's, of course, the part of the battlefield that if we go out to the wheat field and peach orchard and, and follow the tour the tour route, we, we don't go down that line at all because mm-hmm. there's no fighting or not much fighting right along that part of the line. Uh, it's only if we're in a rush after a little round top to go straight to Pickett's Charge that we drive down their line, and it's just a means to get to Pickett's Charge more than anything. So... Um, the core is is pretty much split up, but then if you take their batteries and you put Cowan right at the angle, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, there's another six core battery. It, when you're in the parking lot to the National Cemetery and you're pulling out on the Tony Town Road, there is a mm-hmm. six core battery sitting right there. There's another one up on Cemetery Hill. There's several that are behind the line. Uh, like out on the Tawny Town Road almost, that were not engaged but do have monuments. But again, if you're looking for the Third Corps artillery, you're going to find it in a line. Mm -hmm. If you want to find the Second Corps artillery, you find it in a line. Uh, If you want to find the 11th and the 1st Corps artillery, it's up on Cemetery Hill, and you can find them all in a concentrated area. When you're looking for the 6th Corps artillery, it's all All over over. the place. Mm -hmm. And so just like... Uh, the infantry was used as a box of Band-Aids. The artillery batteries re- were used as a bunch of smaller Band-Aids, mm-hmm. wherever they were needed. And that's Henry Hunt using everything he has at, at a key time. And, of course, Cowan's battery. Cowan's battery probably has the the, the largest amassed writings 
of yeah, any six core here. I love here Cowan. Mm-hmm. He, he's he's and, a great and, writer. Well, I love he, Cowan. Cowan's a great writer. He gets involved in yeah. veterans affairs later later yeah. on. He he does as much uh, to promote what Cowan's battery did at Antietam as he does here. Uh, he, so there's all kinds of different mm-hmm. things. He has his own letterhead with you know. Um, with bat, with artillery insignia on it, the whole bit. He talks so, about he talks about at the angle when they have to smash the coffee pot down over the the guy from the 69th PA's head because mm-hmm. they're running away. I mean, he's I, he's just got kind of what I sense a sarcastic kind of sense of humor, and uh, I think I would like to have and, Colin and a on rather the show. and a rather dark sense of humor yeah. too. I mean, the, if you remember the stories about um, Cushing, one of them was that a piece of shell had almost disemboweled him. Yeah, he had almost been hit by a. Taken, taken a shell full in the gut, and his, his intestines were falling out, and it gets really gross and gross. Well, Cowan basically said if he got hit by a shell the way they said, he would have been dead on the scene. And here's the way I can, can verify that, because one of my guys, Private Edward Edwin Pito, had the same thing happen to him, and he goes into the story. He was an, an immigrant from England, and he was serving the guns, and, and he got hit midsection by a shell that almost cut him in half. Mm-hmm. And Cowan does not hold back from describing mm-hmm. exactly what it was like. He said, if Cushing got hit with it, the same thing would happen to him as happened to Private Pito, and, and left it like that. But So he, he, he would wade into uh, that kind of an argument yeah, if it popped up. I would, mean, yeah. It was a National Tribune kind of a thing, so you, you knew he'd have to get involved. But so most of what we get of a colorful nature out of six core fighting really comes from Cowan. Okay, and that wraps up part one of John Sedgwick and the Six Corps with Carol Reardon. Great job. Who knew there was so much to cover with the Six Corps at Gettysburg? And we can't wait for part two, which will be coming at you soon. So before we wrap up this episode, re- quick reminder you can find out where you can find us on social media in our show notes. Also, if you'd like to give a donation to the show, you can find that information there. And as always, one of the best ways to help out the show is if you can write a review on the podcast platform of your choice. We certainly greatly appreciate it. That's one of the ways to help spread the word about the show and really bring more listeners into what we truly think, as much as I hate this word, the best Gettysburg content out there. Yes, it is. And also a reminder, too, to check us out on YouTube, the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. So with that, I believe we'll put a bow on this episode, and we will see you next time for John Sedgwick and the Sixth Corps at Gettysburg, Part 2. Take care, folks. And don't forget to get all your favorite Battle of Gettysburg podcast swag at our website, thebattleofgettysburgpodcast.com.